This is my conversation with Derek Levin, an associate teaching professor of ethics at the Tepper School of Business. His research focuses on principles of fairness and weighing harms from the perspective of a contractarian ethical theory and how organizations can implement these principles into standards for AI and autonomous systems. He received his PhD from John Hopkins University in 2012 and taught ethics at the University of Pittsburgh for 10 years before joining Tepper. In his book, Ethics for Robots, How to Design a Moral Algorithm, Levin defends a Rawlsian maxim principle for autonomous systems which impact human well-being in the field of transportation, healthcare, and defense. As founder of the consulting group Ethical Algorithms, Derek has worked with governments and companies to develop policies on fairness and benefit for AI and autonomous systems. Hi, Derek, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I want to just start from the beginning. So what's your background? What got you interested in the field of AI? and autonomic systems? Well, uh, I have a PhD in philosophy from Johns Hopkins. I taught at the University of Pittsburgh for about 11 years, teaching mostly their ethics courses. Uh, and now I teach ethics at the business school, the Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, I teach ethics and AI to the grad students, and I teach general business ethics classes to the undergrads. Um, as far as what got me interested in AI, that's sort of a long story. Um, I took a winding road to this place where I am at right now. I would always, I, I say, I would say I'm always interested in the question of intelligence, the theoretical question of what is intelligence, and the practical question of what should we do with intelligence. Um, but as a young person at university, I didn't really know where to explore those kinds of questions. I didn't have a lot of mentorship. I explored classes in computer science and philosophy and psychology, and all of these seemed to grapple with a part of that problem, but only a small part of it. I took some graduate courses in psychology at NYU with a person named Gary Marcus, who was very encouraging of these theoretical problems having to do with intelligence, human int intelligence and machine intelligence. And I wound up exploring these in a philosophy dissertation at Johns Hopkins uh, that was about lexical semantics. And I still wasn't really comfortable with the, the area that I was in, just pure philosophy. Um, what I was seeking was something which didn't really exist yet, and it exists now. It really emerged around 2014, 2015, this area that we now call ethics of AI. Uh, and it's something which I'm so happy exists now. It, it didn't exist when I was younger. Uh, I was sort of seeking it out, a place which was not there yet. Um, but this new field is an interdisciplinary one that pulls in people from philosophy, psychology, computer science, mathematics, law. Um, and it's it's just the place that I've been sort of wanting to be for, for a long time. So what is intelligence? <laughs> well, there are different ways of defining intelligence. Uh, you could define it behaviorally in terms of what a, a thing does. 
Um, or you could define it in terms of process, uh, what a thing is, uh, how it processes information. Uh, I tend to use both of those definitions together, uh, where I think of intelligence as a process of solving complex tasks, like, for instance, moving around in the world, avoiding objects, recognizing images, uh, planning behavior, producing language and thought. Um, but doing so in a very particular way, namely a way that learns from past experiences and integrates information. Um, so this is really pulling together a lot of different definitions into a, a big kludge of, of a definition. Um, but that's usually how I think about intelligence as both a kind of task or a set of tasks, complex tasks, and also a particular way of performing those tasks. What's the difference between AI and then robots? Because there's a there's there's big debate out there in this field. How would you? That's a great question. Yeah. yeah, that's a great question, and this is very important because a lot of I would say lay people uh, conflate the two. Think well, AI is a robot, and vice versa, and that's not necessarily true. Uh, you could have a system that we call AI, which is just a program for evaluating job applications or evaluating loan applications. It's not a physical machine that moves around in the world, um, but it does perform a complex task. Uh, it's been trained on a historical data set uh, using some kind of machine learning procedure. And most academics and people in industry now feel comfortable calling this AI even though it's not a robot. Um, conversely, you could have and do have robots that move around in the world, uh, which don't use any kind of machine learning procedure. Historically, uh, in the 20th century, robots were designed uh, in this what's called good old fashioned AI approach, which is just a set of if then rules uh, for navigating around the world. If I want to, for example, design a machine that moves from one corner of the room to another corner of the room, uh, I could program that machine uh, in a way that doesn't use any kind of learning procedure. Instead, I just say something like, okay, you're going to have a little camera or perceptual device that measures the distance between you and every object in the room and compares that distance, uh, say, to the distance between that spot and the goal and you're going to perform a procedure that just minimizes the distance on the next step that you move to. Uh, so move here and then measure, okay, what possible places can I move to that are going to get me closer to the corner and then move another step and so on. Uh, and that procedure doesn't involve any machine learning, right? And it's something that uh, a child could program into a robot, my, my own son, uh, is in a robotics class, he's 11, and he makes these kinds of machines without any kind of sophisticated background in machine learning. Uh, so uh, indeed a robot is just any kind of machine that moves around in the world following a program. Um, now, of course, the most advanced robots right now, things uh, like, for example, what you see coming out of the company Boston Dynamics, um, those, of course, do usually use machine learning um, procedures in most of the components uh, of, their, of their navigation systems, their perceptual systems. Um, but that 
is just a combining of these two areas, right? So we have machine learning and we have robotics. Um, a lot of machine learning is AI. A lot of robotics is AI, but they are not necessarily the same thing. Uh, there's even a fun debate about whether things like linear regression is AI. This is just a very simple machine learning procedure, uh, which basically um, uses a set of data points that you have and draw the line through that data. It's very easy, very simple. It's been around for a, a long time. Um, and the question is whether that's AI or not. I actually have gotten different answers about this. I've talked to engineers and computer scientists who work in the field, and some of them will say, yeah, linear regression is AI. It's, it's a kind of machine learning. It's just the simplest kind. Um, but then some of them say no. So what exactly AI is, is a sort of a cluster concept, what we, what we call, um, which is that it is any kind of, let's call it, uh, program that does the kinds of things that humans do, usually using a machine learning procedure, but not necessarily. So what's the difference between machine learning and deep learning? Is there a difference? Yes, so deep learning is a, a subset of machine learning. Uh, it's usually in a certain kind of architecture called a neural network, uh, where you have uh, the input, which is set up as a set of uh, nodes or little dots, um, graphically speaking. Uh, and then each of these nodes is connected to another set of nodes in another layer. Um, and then you have some set of layers, and then the layers are all connected to an output, which could be, in the case of like a classification task, it could be something like, are you going to classify this as accept or reject if it's a, a program for approving applications for a loan, for example. Um, and generally speaking, the more layers uh, you add to that network, uh, the more complex the, the architecture, the more complex the program becomes. Uh, and that's usually what's referred to as, as deep learning. Um, there was a fascinating discovery in the late 80s that a neural network, that it has enough layers, enough nodes and connections, uh, can actually approximate any function, uh, which is really amazing. It's very remarkable. It's this, this fantastic discovery. Um, now, of course, with greater layers, with greater connections, with greater complexity, you get uh, all these other problems as well. It becomes uh, draining of a lot of resources. It's, uh, it takes a lot of time and so on. But uh, aside from that, there are also ethical challenges as well. Um, but it is worth noting how, how amazing this is, that uh, what this means is essentially any kind of task could be, in, in principle, performed by a neural network. Um, this is something that I actually got very excited about when I was young and in university during that time that I said I was sort of exploring around and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I had read this book from the 80s by two psychologists named McClellan and Rummelhart uh, called Parallel Distributed Processing. Uh, and they were making the claim that this is how the human mind works. Um, it's not just a way of simulating intelligence it is actually how natural intelligence works. It's how the human human brain works. 
Um, and I read another book by a philosopher, Patricia Churchland, uh, who said that this is philosophically very important. Uh, it's important for the way we think about concepts and reasoning as well. Um, so this is very exciting stuff. And it was only later in the 21st century uh, that it became, from an engineering perspective, um, practical. And now we have what's called the, the deep learning revolution that's happened since around 2012, um, when, for example, um, the first kind of image recognition programs were able to surpass human abilities. Um, so it's, that's, that's, that's deep learning, and it's a subset of, uh, of machine learning. Like I said, machine learning can be, can be very simple. It can just be a decision tree uh, learning procedure. Uh, it could be a procedure for learning a line through a set of data, linear regression, right? Um, but it can be more more sophisticated too. How does your background in philosophy help you work in ethics and AI? Like how, how do they overlap? Right. So people who are in philosophy are interested in both these theoretical and practical issues. In fact, the field of philosophy can be divided in that way as both theoretical philosophy and practical philosophy. Uh, sometimes there's a little bit of tension between the two of those. Um, always, always friendly, of course. Um, and the theoretical side of philosophers do things like metaphysics and epistemology. They're interested in what really exists, how do we know about the world, and so on. Uh, on the practical side, people are interested in, okay, what should we do as individuals, as people? How should we lead our lives? Um, and politically, how should we organize as groups and so on? Um, and so my background, uh, almost by, by accident, uh, is in philosophy. And so I, of course, have training in these um, both traditions and in these particular methods of approaching problems from a very abstract level. Um, I was actually talking the other day with a computer scientist and uh, she was describing these different levels at which she works. Uh, she was saying that, you know, she usually works at the level of uh, coding in say Python, um, but then sometimes she'll want to dive deeper into like an assembly code language or C++ or something like that. But she never goes down into these deeper levels of uh, like transistors and the hardware of the machine. And she says, any anytime uh, we get into things that have to do with electricity, I get scared. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is funny because obviously that's what's happening in the machine. Hmm. Um, but she says, no, I, I want to operate at this level of abstraction. Um, but then I was saying, well, my work is almost a level of abstraction higher than that in some ways too, um, because beyond just the level of, okay, well, programming, you get to the level of, okay, what kind of task is this program actually carrying out, actually performing, if it's like speech recognition, if it's image classification, if it's navigation, navigating around the world. Um, and then we get to these sort of higher level questions of things like, well, what is the purpose of doing that? What is the goal of navigating or classifying or using language and so on? This is also an analogy that was made by a cognitive neuroscientist um, who died tragically in the 80s named David Marr. Um, and he uh, used this, this analogy of levels quite often that you have these lower levels of 
hardware, what the brain is doing, what the electronic transistors in the machine are doing. Um, but then you have this intermediate level of uh, programming, what the procedure is actually doing. And then this higher level of what he called purpose or function. Um, and philosophers, at least on the practical and theoretical side, are very interested in, I would say, these more theoretical issues of uh, what is the purpose of this machine? What should it be doing? Um, and so that's that's where I come from, really. Um, however, in the, this interdisciplinary area, uh, it's really truly interdisciplinary. Uh, and by that, I mean, nobody is just a philosopher or just a computer scientist or just a lawyer uh, anymore. Uh, if you work in ethics of AI, um, as a philosopher, you have to really know your stuff about AI. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you work in ethics of AI as a computer scientist, you have to know your stuff about ethics and philosophy. You have mm -hmm. to actually do some work to catch up on, okay, what is an ethical argument? How do we persuade people with reasons? Um, what are the different ethical traditions in Western philosophy and other traditions as well? Um, and how do those help us think about these problems of uh, how to design an intelligent machine? and what sorts of restrictions, regulations should we put on intelligent machines? So what are the ethical questions one must ask? So the way that I've organized my thinking in ethics of AI is informed by some recent um, meta-analyses of the field, one of them from Harvard's Berkman Klein Center, uh, one of them from a, a group in, in Zurich, and these are really looking at a lot of ethics and AI documents that have come out over the last five years. Uh, and there have been literally hundreds of these from governments and companies, nonprofit groups, um, trying to say, okay, here's what we think are the most important problems uh, that you need to address if you are designing and deploying an AI model. And the way that I have organized this material is in terms of uh, six basic principles or values, uh, as I said, very informed by Berkman Klein and these other meta-analyses. Uh, so I've analyzed these around issues of autonomy and consent, which is how do we collect data? Where does the data come from? How do we respect uh, people from whom we are collecting data? Uh, make sure they know how their data is being used, they have control over it, they have compensation when their data is actually making profit for the company. Uh, those are issues of autonomy. Um, issues having to do with explainability are another principle or value. And explainability happens whenever you get these complex models like deep learning models, these neural networks with many different layers. And these models are very accurate, but they lack a kind of transparency. It's very difficult to trace the path that a decision actually took from inputs to outputs. Uh, and it is important in a lot of cases to understand why a model actually did something. Um, this is the problem of explainability. There have been many technical methods that have been proposed for how to get explainability. But the philosophical and ethical problem here is what do we want 
from an explainable machine, when we demand that it is explainable, what sorts of legal and practical norms should we hold these machines to? That's the issue of explainability. Um, sorry, I'm going through a big list here. No, uh, I don't know if that's the best way to go about it. I'm just sort of charging through my syllabus and saying, okay, here's one week we do autonomy, mm. here's the other week we do explainability. Um, I'll, I'll maybe finish up the list and then you can go back and... No, it's it's nice that you're giving us a Cliff Notes version of like where which direction should we think in because not all of us are thinking and asking these questions. Good, yes. And indeed, I, as a, as a teacher, part of my job is to try to organize, synthesize all of this material uh, and present it in some accessible way. Uh, that's, that's one of my goals as a teacher. So just charging through this list, the next week we talk about issues having to do with discrimination and then fairness. Um, these are very important problems because you are often uh, training a model on these large historical data sets and there are inequalities between groups in these historical data sets, uh, in gender, in race, in other kinds of groups. And this becomes a problem when you are using that data to make decisions about people, about whether they get loans or jobs or even parole. Uh, so there are models that are being used right now to make decisions about bail and parole for prisoners. Um, and these are using historical data sets, which are often uh, reflecting certain historical injustices in that data. Uh, so we spend two weeks talking about discrimination and fairness, which are importantly different things, um, not just in the law um, in the US, but also ethically different things. Uh, discrimination has to do with the treatment of people as individuals, regardless of their group membership. And fairness has to do with the impact on groups, uh, which can be often unintentional. Um, in US discrimination law, this is called uh, disparate treatment versus disparate impact. Hmm. Um, so after that, we talk about issues having to do with benefit and harm, um, having to do with how we measure harm. Uh, this is very complicated when it comes to things like autonomous vehicles. Uh, you could measure the kinds of collisions and fatalities that are accidental uh, and compare them to, say, human errors and say, well, yes, they do cause deaths on the road, but they cause fewer deaths than humans. We also have to figure out what kinds of harms they should avoid, how they should avoid those harms in their collision systems, their navigation systems. Uh, this is the famous trolley problem here uh, about how to weigh different injuries or fatalities, but it's it's a more serious problem than that. Uh, it really has to do with how you are going to avoid and evaluate collisions in general, not just these sort of cartoonish situations uh, where you have to decide whether you're gonna run over one person or five people. <laughs> it's, it's more subtle issues like how close are you going to travel to bicyclists, to other vehicles, what kinds of risks are you willing to expose drivers and passengers to because you know if you're driving billions of miles in these things those add up those small little risk calculations add up to to fatalities over time um, and finally the last topic we discuss is responsibility uh, which is when an ai model does make an error of some kind inevitably they do uh, how should we hold 
companies or other parties responsible for this. For example, in medical devices, um, if these make a mistake of some sort, if you have an AI diagnostic tool for classifying whether, say, a skin lesion is cancer or not cancer, whether it's melanoma or not, um, and it mis misses um, somebody who does have cancer or misclassifies somebody as having cancer when it doesn't, um, how do we hold people responsible for that? Especially when uh, this is now distributed over a large chain of people. There's the doctor who's who is using it, who is applying the model. There is the hospital who purchased the model. Uh, there is the company that designed it, the engineers who actually worked on it. Uh, how do we hold people responsible for these kinds of mistakes? This is a very difficult problem now as well in ethics and law. Going back to data and compensation, uh, there was this whole surge. I think it's still people are getting pictures online of like, you know, their faces with artwork and it's kind of similar to different artists and it was stolen art from actual artists without actually compensating them. What system do you think should come into play to make sure that, you know, first of all, uh, creative work is not stolen. And then second, there's a system that compensates those artists or even gives them a choice to consent to their work being used. Good, good. So you use the word stolen and that's very important there because the companies who are scraping data off of the internet and using that data to train their models would not say that it's stolen. In fact, they argue that this is data, these are images, which have been put up online. Uh, and therefore, by putting that information online, these people, these artists, have in some way consented to the use of that data. Um, another kind of argument that they make is, yes, it's true that we have collected your data and used it in the training set, but the output of this model is something completely different and it's not actually based on your art instead it's let's use another word inspired by your art and if one artist is inspired by another artist uh, she doesn't necessarily owe the original artist any compensation for that perhaps she owes some kind of credit um, but not necessarily consent or compensation. These are all sometimes called the three C's here, consent, credit, and compensation. And so the company who is collecting all of this uh, data and using it to produce something different could use either of these two sorts of arguments and say, well, the artist consented to it and or it's totally different. It's inspired by their work. It's not actually using their work. Now, what we have to do in ethics of AI is to evaluate those kinds of arguments and say, okay, are these convincing persuasive arguments or not? Uh, we can use a long tradition in ethics and law of thinking about uh, consent and thinking about credit. Uh, and indeed, there's an old history to these problems of implied consent or implicit consent. If you post something online, does that mean you implicitly agree to other people seeing it, to other people using it? Uh, even an even older debate about if you go outside, do you consent to people taking your picture? 
this is such a simple, simple question at first, but it hides enormous complexity, ethical complexity, um, because the ideas behind it have to do with what consent actually is. Uh, we have to dive deep into asking, okay, we are not necessarily asking about what you thought about while doing this, because nobody, say, goes outside thinking, well, I give permission for people to take a picture of me, or nobody posts text or images online saying or thinking in their minds, I give permission for people to use this. Instead, we have to move to more, let's call it detached versions of consent, which are sometimes called implied consent, where you say, okay, if you had asked the person when she walked outside, do you give permission for people to see you, to take pictures of you? What would she have said? If you had asked the person when she posted text on social media or when she posted her artwork online, does she give permission for this? Uh, that's sometimes called implied consent. Right. Um, but these are new terrains of implied consent which have not been worked out yet. Um, and further detached from that, we could even ask about what's called hypothetical consent. This is what I usually advocate uh, as a contractarian. Um, we could talk about what that is if you like. Um, but contractarians are more interested in what people would agree to if they were fully informed and rational and what we might call the best versions of themselves in some kind of idealized bargaining position where they're not feeling coercion, they're not feeling pressure to agree and so on. Um, so from some kind of idealized bargaining position, would people agree that when they go outside, other people can see them? Uh, I think yes. Would people agree from some kind of idealized bargaining position that when they go outside, people can record them and use that for any purpose? I think no. And that's the approach that I generally advocate to thinking about consent and data usage here. This can also be applied to text and images that people post online as well. I tend to think that uh, if a person posts text or images online, uh, that hypothetically that person ideally would not agree to those being used for any particular purpose. Although there are certain kinds of purposes that most people would agree, uh, let's call them harmless or innocuous testing purposes. Um, and maybe even some other kinds of purposes like public safety and security. Uh, for example, if there's a health organization using images or using data to evaluate some kind of pandemic response, uh, then perhaps that might be permissible in this hypothetical consent framework. Um, but if there is a company that's using someone's data, which they posted online um, to generate profit, I do not think that's the kind of thing that people would hypothetically consent to. Um, now that's just my own view, but what's important here in the debate is, is really the debate itself is really getting clear about what the different options are, what the different positions are, and recognizing, okay, when a company is saying this, this is the argument they're making. This is the position they're taking. Uh, and these are the problems with it. These are the responses to it. Uh, because a lot of the time, especially in these new spaces, uh, there's a lot of confusion about what the possible positions actually are. 
Uh, and a lot of philosophy and law really is just outlining, okay, here are the different possible positions you could take on this issue. Uh, and here are the different arguments you could have for supporting or rejecting it. So how does law come into place? Because based on country, like in the Middle East where I'm in right now, uh, someone taking your picture without your consent is not allowed. You can't publish Excellent. that. You can't use that. So does that translate into AI? And then when AI is generating images out of images that are published online, would that not translate online as well on the web? Yeah, good. Now, I think that law is very important to pay attention to and to draw from because it's really where, let's say, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Uh, it's where historically people have been punished, have had to pay fines, have had to go to jail, and very intelligent people have had to work very hard to figure out these problems. So I have a great deal of respect for lawyers and for the law, and I think there's a lot of important information we can draw from, say, contract law here when thinking about um, consent, what constitutes informed consent, uh, the difference between ownership and licensing. These are all important legal issues which have been worked out uh, very, very well. Um, but at the same time, I am an ethicist, and what ethics is is different from what law is, or I should say what ethics tries to be is different. Ethics tries to be universal in some sense, uh, meaning that it is giving people reasons for what they should and shouldn't do, regardless of where they live, regardless of what the laws happen to be. Uh, this is also important because ethics can be used to sometimes guide and justify the laws. Uh, often it is unclear what the laws should be. And ethics is here to say, okay, here's why we should have uh, these kinds of laws about informed consent, about compensation. Uh, it's because people are not or hypothetically would not agree to post their information if it's making profit unless they were getting compensation for it and so on, right? So ethics at least aims to be universal in this sense and something that can be applied regardless of where you live or what the laws are. Uh, this is also important for business. And one thing about working at a business school is that uh, you are working with and thinking about policy for large multinational corporations. Uh, and they are doing business in regions like the Middle East and Europe and East Asia uh, and the US. And they have to figure out, okay, what's our policy going to be? in these different regions, which have different expectations. Like you said, the Middle East has very different expectations about privacy than say East Asia. Uh, these are just different cultural norms. And I've, in my own experience, seen this and, and had to work with companies about this problem. Uh, when, for example, you have an insurance company that needs to figure out, okay, what sorts of data are we going to ask customers for? Uh, in East Asia, they might be more willing to provide it in the EU or the Middle East, they might be less willing and in fact even be, be offended at, at your collecting that kind of data or asking for that kind of data. Um, and so this is what ethics is trying to do, is trying to say, okay, what kinds of policies can we have that all human beings can in some sense agree on uh, and, and get behind? 
you spoke briefly about discrimination and fairness. Mm-hmm. Can that AI be reverse engineered? Like, you know, there are a lot of judges that people say, you know, this was not really fair, but then you have a data set of what their rulings are, what they've come up with based on region, even cops. Uh, is there some way to make it a little bit more ethical or does, do you think that's so giving the AI more power than it should have? Good. So let's start out, I think, by acknowledging the promise and potential of automation in general for solving these kinds of discrimination and fairness problems. Um, In my class, I talk about this example from the US. One of the first uh, credit companies ever was called the Retail Credit Corporation. And it was founded in the late 1800s. Um, Before that, banks, when they were giving loans to people, they would just essentially do interviews and determine based on that interview whether to give that person a loan or not. Retail Credit Corporation came along and said, we're going to investigate people, we'll build a file with information, and you can use that information, which we'll sell to you, excuse me, to evaluate whether that person is going to be a good credit risk or not. Unsurprisingly, these files had problems with discrimination. Uh, They contained information about a person's religion and their political affiliation, uh, their romantic history, their medical history, and so on. Uh, They were also not publicly available. People couldn't see what was in them. Um, Now, the transformation in the middle of the 20th century to a digital format, uh, including the FICO score, which was created in the 1950s by two engineers, uh, Isaac and Fair, that this was a real benefit because now it can be clear okay, what are the features that are being used to evaluate this applicant? Uh, It's only things like his or her past credit, how many late payments have you had, how many inquiries have you had, and so on. It's not things like what religion are you, what political affiliation do you have, have you been divorced, that kind of thing. And so this is an improvement, and we should acknowledge that um, allowing digital information that can be accessed and using that digital information in a formal model, which is transparent, that that actually leads to, or can lead to progress, uh, can lead to less discrimination, which is great. But at the same time, um, it can also have problems of its own. As I was saying, if you are using larger and larger data sets, Uh, that contain these historical inequalities between groups, uh, then you can accidentally, unintentionally, uh, build a model, train a model, which is going to result in what's called disparate impact in the US, which is going to continue these historical inequalities into its own behavior, right? And so even though automated decision systems do hold the promise and potential for avoiding some of the biases that humans have. Uh, They also have their own kinds of problems, which I think we should try to solve. I think the solution to this is not to go back to the olden days Hmm. of humans just using their gut intuition uh, about a person. Uh, Instead, I think 
a better way of doing this is to use automated systems in a way that avoids some of their problems, but also gets all of their potential benefits as well. So a big part of gut intuition, I mean, it's, I might be completely wrong in this, is making quick decisions uh, and calculations without you consciously understanding it. Would you think there will come a time where AI will have its own version of a subconscious calculation, which we can't assess exactly, we don't understand how it works, but it does it? That's interesting. I don't know if I would apply the categories conscious and subconscious here. Mm -hmm. I would certainly say that there are some kinds of models which are more and less interpretable. Uh, that is, of course, the problem I mentioned of explainability, uh, which is that if you are building a certain kind of model, uh, like, for example, a sophisticated neural network, a uh, convolutional neural network, for example, then this is going to be very difficult to trace the particular path that inputs took to outputs. Uh, one example of this that I use in the class is this credit score that Bank of America is using currently from a company called SageStream. Uh, it's called Credit Optics, and it is a convolutional neural network. It's built on a large set of data, uh, some of that data is financial, but importantly, some of that data is outside what we would call traditional financial information. Uh, it's information about uh, things like how often you have repaid your utility bills. Um, other credit companies have gone further and even used things like social media data, purchasing history, and so on. Um, that gets back to issues of autonomy and consent, issues about whether people would agree to have that information used by a, a credit scoring model. But the, the point that I'm making here is that that model, that particular model, the credit optics score, uh, is very difficult to interpret. If you ask, okay, why did the particular features of this applicant, her income, her employment history, her education history, uh, why did that lead to a rejection? It's very difficult to trace the path in the same way that you can with, say, a simple linear model like the FICO score. Uh, with the FICO score, you could take, it has five or six different categories of information. Each of them has a weight attached to it. You could say something like, okay, the number of lines of credit you have out is 30% of the score. And that is a very helpful explanation. It tells you exactly what the contribution of the input was to that output. Um, but it's difficult or impossible to do that with a sophisticated uh, convolutional neural network like the credit optics score. Um, so in, in that way, you could say that this is a kind of gut intuition that the machine has hmm. because it's not truly unconscious, but it is something that is difficult or impossible for us to trace in the same way. Uh, so in that way, yes, it is It is unconscious. Um, and it also has some of the same problems of unconscious bias in humans as well, mm. as I was pointing to, uh, namely that these can often draw on these historical inequalities and just reproduce them in its behavior. Speaking of consent again, 
uh, there's this whole genre on the internet of AI generated porn out of people who are like famous people, these celebrities, YouTubers, and it's with their face or their likeness. And there are big uh, legal battles that are being taken place with a lot of money involved where they ask for that to be taken off. And we're still in the, those learning phases of how this works. Is this allowed? But still, this is being generated. Is there a way to tap that or stop that completely uh, before it takes, like, because it's any, it's all fair game right now. Excellent. And the, so there's going to be a short answer, which is unsatisfying that I have to this. Uh, the, the short unsatisfying answer is that what my job is as an AI ethicist is to figure out what kinds of decisions and practices are permissible and which kinds are impermissible, especially for a company to do, but mm -hmm. also for individuals for do, to do. And so I can give arguments for why that's unacceptable. And that's important because there are some people who are trying to defend this and saying, well, you're a public figure, you put your face out there, and therefore, if you allowed us to look at you, you allowed us to use your image in all sorts of ways that we feel like as well. Now, I think that's a terrible argument. <laughs> and I can point out why that's terrible, because that is using this idea of implied, I'm sorry, actual consent, rather than these more sophisticated ideas of implied and hypothetical consent, um, we can talk about data ownership and the idea that you don't just give away your likeness when you allow people to use it. It is more similar to what we think of as licensing in the law, where we give permission for people to use it, but people still have control and should have control over how it's used. Uh, and they would only consent to certain kinds of purposes and not others. So I can, I can give arguments for that. And indeed, that's what ethics is all about, is trying to give good arguments and evaluate these arguments. Um, but there is the practical issue of how do we stop it? Hmm. Uh, and that is, unfortunately, the sad answer to that is that's not really what I can help with. Hmm. Uh, I can give arguments for why people shouldn't do it. Hmm. Um, but it's hard for me to give arguments for how to get people to stop it. Uh, those are political and psychological questions, which are very important. And I want people to work on that. But in ethics, it's a little different. Uh, for example, I can give arguments for why people shouldn't cheat on their romantic partners, um, but people are still going to do it. Uh, now, does that mean it's useless to argue about it? No. Uh, it's important. It's important to have good reasons and to understand what's wrong with that. Um, but at the same time, it's it's out of my domain to say, okay, how do we actually stop people from doing that? Do you see people trying to stop people from doing that? Do you see uh, a system coming into place where there would be checks and balances for someone who's just taking this AI technology or uh, developing something like this uh, for their own benefit? and exploiting other people. I do. And the legal system is slow, but it does move relatively quickly in response to these kinds of problems, especially. Uh, so the issues you're raising about deep fakes used not just for, for pornography, but also for um, misrepresentation of security, political figures, 
um, evidence and criminal trials and so on. Uh, this is an area where the law is moving quickly. Um, and also companies are moving quickly. Uh, for example, when ChatGPT was released last year by OpenAI, um, there was a real and serious concern that this product would be used for cheating. And indeed, a lot of students seem to be using it for that purpose. Uh, and now OpenAI and other companies are responding to it. They are trying to produce some kind of um, procedure for evaluating whether a homework assignment was written by a generative AI model or not. Um, this is very difficult <laughs> to do. Um, there are also solutions like including a watermark on this. For example, Google has done with this with some of their products. Uh, Meta has done this with some of their products like image generators. Uh, they'll include a watermark on it to say, okay, this is not real. This is something which the, the company has produced um, to avoid it being confused for an authentic video. Um, but these are, I would say, difficult practical problems and legal problems um, I am encouraging of lawyers and regulators and politicians to figure out very innovative ways to solve this problem. Um, unfortunately, the technology moves faster than regulation. Hmm. And that's always the case. Uh, and so there's always going to be this period in between when a new technology creates ways of taking advantage of it, misapplying it, uh, and when laws and industry norms can catch up to that. But the, the, the technology that is being used to like, in a way check if, uh, especially with chat GPT three, chat GPT, sorry. Uh, if it's uh, AI generated uh, text, it's not accurate. Like there has been like, I think 9% of uh, human generated text is coming out as AI, yep. which is again, dangerous. Also in a way, a lot of students are getting away with plagiarism, coming up with new text uh, and like basically research work that they've done, like all the papers that they're submitting is inaccurate. Uh, it's not their work exactly, sorry, not inaccurate. So how does the education system grapple with that? Because there's no way to 100% guarantee that this is like, there's no way. Yeah, yeah. And I think what we're seeing are big structural rethinkings here about what kind of assignments could even be dropped or eliminated. Uh, I've actually dropped, not entirely for this reason, uh, but I used to assign these one-page weekly responses to students uh, as a way of showing that they've been engaging with the weekly readings. Uh, it's not an important assignment. It's not worth a lot of weight in the total grade, um, but it's just something to check in to make sure they're doing the readings, to provide motivation, incentive, to make sure that they are doing the readings on a weekly basis. Um, but I, I eliminated that from my courses. I would say mostly for other reasons, mostly because I thought that um, it was just too much busy work, not a lot of thought and effort has to go into them, it's too much grading for my TAs, it's, it's not worth it. Um, but part of the reason was that this is exactly the kind of thing that can be easily produced by ChatGPT. 
Hmm. Um, and so there are some instructors like me who might decide to change the kinds of assignments that they write. Um, I've actually had conversations with some of my colleagues about that. Um, one, <laughs> one joke that I've made is that if your assignment is something which could be completed by an AI, then maybe that's a problem about the assignment and not <laughs> the AI. Um, at least for my papers, they are uh, longer papers where students have to present a policy, defend that policy with reasons, using the articles and so on, consider counterexamples, engage with those. And I tend to think right now, from what I've seen, uh, that it's difficult or impossible for any generative AI model to produce anything that, that does that. Um, however, in the future, that might not be the case. Hmm. Um, but at least for now, I think this actually can shake things up in a way which is not always bad. It can cause us to rethink in education, okay, what kind of assignments are we giving? If we're giving assignments that a machine could give, could complete, um, either number one, maybe that's not the right kind of assignment to give, or number two, maybe that's something that humans should be doing in conjunction with machines. I mean, the same problem existed with the invention of calculators and graphing calculators and computers and the internet, which is that, okay, well, no longer can you give homework assignments that are just these simple calculations and expect humans to do it uh, or expect children to do it and not cheat. Uh, at least uh, some portion of them are going to use their calculators uh, to do these arithmetic problems. And some portion of them are going to use the internet uh, to do these simple kinds of question problems. Um, but we have to rethink structurally, perhaps, uh, what homework, what assignments, what education is going to be, and perhaps integrate the technology into it. Um, and so, for example, you have students uh, who can use the internet, who can use calculators along uh, with their assignments. The same, I would hope, can be done with AI models as well. And I encourage, uh, actually, education to move in that direction. Um, already, we've seen things like Turnitin and Grammarly, um, which are not, uh, you know, these are just simple uh, procedures but they're just like search procedures. They're not, they're not anything sophisticated, um, but they are being used as, I would say, decision support tools. This is a classification um, along with human reasoning as well. What do you think uh, will this transpire in a workplace? Because a lot of people are assuming now that, you know, uh, this would be the best tool to use for if you're a lazy employee, you just get your work done through these uh, AI softwares. Yeah, and I would rethink once again, what we even mean by a lazy employee. So we want to avoid the problem of saying, well, back in my day, I used <laughs> to have to do all of this by hand. Uh, for example, if somebody says, well, back in my day, I have, I used to have to do all of these calculations by hand and you're using this calculator or you're using this computer to do these calculations. Hmm. Uh, I think a reasonable response is, um, that's okay. I'm not being lazy. I am just using, I'm offloading, uh, a lot of the labor 
that used to be done by humans onto machines. I mean, that's the promise of AI in general, Yeah, is that uh, things that humans used to do, which we no longer want to do, like maybe doing the dishes and the laundry, uh, could be offloaded onto, onto machines. And I think there's always going to be one kind of Luddite response to that, which is saying, well, back in my day, I used to have to do the dishes and the laundry on my own. Uh, my own children say this um, when I try to get them to help out with the dishes and the laundry at home. Uh, they say, well, robots are going to be doing this pretty soon. We're going to have the Tesla bot and it's going to do the dishes and do the laundry. I'm not going to have to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have a number of responses I give to that. Um, but one of them is, well, that's fine in the future. Right now we have to do it. Um, so I'm certainly not going to endorse the position that just because it's offloaded onto a machine that that means the person offloading it is, is lazy or irresponsible. Um, indeed, this changes a lot of what we think about as work. Uh, programmers are having to reevaluate this right now, which is that uh, you have sophisticated programs and GPT can do a little bit of this, but obviously um, there are other uh, programs like Copilot, which are very good at doing this, which is um, actually generating code um, based on what you want. If you say, okay, just generate a code in Python for a simple image classifier um, using supervised learning over this kind of data, it can do something like that. Um, now there's going to be a whole generation, I think, of coders who are frustrated about that. And I think that's okay. That's just the usual transition that we're going to get when a new technology comes along, which replaces human labor. Um, and I think that we can reimagine what human labor then becomes uh, in conjunction with that automation. And what will that look like? Because a lot of jobs, like a writing job, like a journalist can get their research, get, uh, but then an AI system can generate the text. Uh, idea generation, some a company which has a smaller budget, it'll be easier for them to come up with ideas through an AI system rather than pay an agency or another third party to get that idea. But then that reduces a lot of new businesses. So how would that look like in the future? I don't know, but I'm excited to find out. Um, so the short answer is, I think that this is a big transformation, a big social transformation. And I am not going to make predictions about how these large economic sectors like journalism and art and even transportation and other areas are going to transform in relation to automation. Um, I can make some small, I would say, not predictions, but recommendations about how I think they should transform. And I think they should transform by keeping human beings in the loop, as they say. Um, although even that is a phrase that I don't like. I think it's misleading in certain ways. Um, another phrase that's used here that may be better is keeping some kind of meaningful human contribution, meaningful human control in these areas. Uh, that you can have an AI model which generates images or video. Uh, I've read all sorts of speculation about, well, this is no longer, this is going to replace 
movie studios. We're going to have movies that are personalized. And that's great. I love that idea. I support that. Um, but I think there's also, it's important to use these new generative technologies in conjunction with human labor, with human creativity. Um, this is currently being worked out in obviously transportation and medicine where for instance, doctors are using AI to assist in their classification of diseases and injuries. But at the same time, we don't want AI models to replace doctors, both because they are not as accurate, um, but also because it's important to have the explainability, the responsibility of doctors there as well. And so what I think and I want to happen in these areas is for professionals, doctors, writers, uh, to be making use of this technology as a resource. And this is indeed what companies that design these tools often, often try to pitch them as, hmm. is a resource amongst many. Um, now, what does that mean in practice? Does it mean that if I'm a doctor diagnosing cancer, that I first give my judgment and then consult the AI model as a second opinion? Uh, the same with a writer. If I'm writing a news story, do I write my own story and then consult the AI model uh, as a second draft or a second author and then integrate the two together? Maybe. Maybe it means something like that. And I think we're going to see these kinds of norms and standards develop around it. We might even see things like, well, you never do the AI model first. You do your, your own labor first and then you do the AI model, and then you do an integration step where you combine the two together or you manage the two. We might see norms like that. I'm, I'm fascinated to see that. Can you speak a little bit about the role of transparency in the development and the deployment of AI in uh, systems like this? And why is it so important to promote ethical outcomes with them? Right, so transparency is an interesting issue because you could be interested in it for its own sake or you could be interested in it because of the things that it gets you. So transparency is important, not just for itself, but also because you can use it to figure out if the model is using, say, discriminatory features, protected attributes, um, if the model is perhaps not going to be reliable. So transparency is important for these other values as well, uh, like, avoiding discrimination and making sure it's reliable, accurate, beneficial, and so on. I am also fascinated about the issue of transparency for its own sake. Um, and right now there is a lot of work in this, in this area, sometimes called XAI, uh, explainable AI, um, both on the technical side and the non-technical side. The technical side are basically engineers, computer scientists who are building procedures for making these complex models um, more explainable. But then on the non-technical side, we have uh, philosophers, cognitive scientists, lawyers who are debating about what we even want with transparency. So there are laws like, for example, the GDPR uh, in Europe, uh, which was passed in 2016. And one of the articles, Article 22, of that document says that um, if you are evaluated by an automated system, uh, you have a right to some kind of meaningful information in the logic of that system. 
Now, after that document was approved by the parliament, um, there were several authors who wrote papers saying there is now a right to explanation that consumers have, where if you get rejected for a job, rejected for a loan by an automated system, you have a right to explaining uh, or for a, a right to have that decision explained to you. Hmm. On the other hand, there was a group of researchers at Oxford, uh, including Sandra Vochter and Brett Middlestock, who wrote a paper saying, no, 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 not so fast. Actually, look at the language of the regulation there. It says meaningful information about the logic. What does meaningful information mean? It could mean all sorts of things. So if you were rejected for a loan, it could tell you something like, applicants who are rejected tend to be rejected because of their income and their overall debt amount things like that. It could say something even more specific, like applicants who are rejected are often rejected because of late payments, something like that too. But that doesn't necessarily give you a right, they claimed, to telling you what features about you led that program to reject your application. And it's not obvious that people even necessarily expect that. There's been some interesting work by psychologists in the last few years, essentially giving people these scenarios where you tell people, okay, you apply for a job, you apply for a loan, you're rejected, but it's by this computer program. Um, and here are some different explanations that the company might give you for why you were rejected. Which of these is most satisfying to you? Um, surprisingly, people are often less satisfied with explanations that tell you how the program worked. Um, if I say, it's a convolutional neural network and the features are all listed as a set of nodes which then get summed in subsequent nodes and there's a threshold which then gets determines whether that's passed to other nodes and then people don't care about that. Hmm. Instead, they tend to care about things like counterfactuals, which means what could I have changed that would have gotten me approved? And in fact, those are very different types of explanations from the types of explanations which a lot of computer scientists were trying to develop in their XAI methods. Um, so this is a, a reason why the field is interdisciplinary as well, is that you have computer scientists saying, well, look, we have this method for figuring out or explaining to the customer, uh, here's exactly which features are most important in the decision of the model. But it turns out if the customer doesn't care about that, then that's not interesting. Right? What's interesting is, okay, what could I have changed that would have led me to be approved? Uh, and indeed, these are the kinds of questions when we start interpreting laws like the GDPR, uh, which I am, I am hoping will start to be resolved. Usually these are going to be in court cases. Hmm. Uh, so we're going to start seeing more court cases in the U.S. as well and other countries. Um, and it's the courts where the interpretation of what counts as meaningful logic or in the U.S. Um, the law about credit is called the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And it says that the company needs to give specific reasons 
for why someone was rejected, what do specific reasons mean? Once again, I think this is where the courts are probably going to have to weigh in. Uh, but at least from, from my perspective as an ethicist, uh, what I'm trying to do is say, okay, here's why I think uh, companies have good reason to give this kind of explanation, that they should be giving people counterfactual explanations about what they could have done differently, um, because that's what people actually care about. It also has to do with issues about discrimination and ensuring that um, if they had been different, a member of a different group, that they would still have had the same outcome. So we've spoken a lot about doom and gloom, about all the negatives of AI. How has AI transformed our lives in a positive way? And how is it looking to transform? This is great because... I often get, <laughs> uh, well, it's true. It's true that a lot of my job is doom and gloom. Um, but I, I sometimes compare that to risk analysis. I mean, part of part of the job of risk assessment is here's all the things that can go wrong. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what I do. Um, but I wouldn't be doing this if I wasn't excited about technology and AI. And I didn't think that it could transform our lives for the better. Um, I think that in almost every way, uh, my life is better now than it was 20 years ago because of technology and specifically because of AI, um, because of translation models which have been developed, because of navigation models which have been developed. Um, simple navigation systems like Google Maps, Apple Maps. Hmm. Um, these have transformed my life dramatically. Um, finding out when the bus is going to arrive, uh, being able to track uh, buses so I know exactly where it is in the world, uh, communicating with each other through Google Meet as we're doing right now through Zoom. Um, these are amazing advances. Now, now those aren't specifically AI, but just technology in general. Um, I also think that the advances in speech recognition, image classification are incredible. I have uh, home devices, which are sometimes fun, sometimes not very useful. Um, but I think that these are incredibly exciting. Um, the advances in recommender systems uh, like YouTube, Netflix, and so on are, are wonderful. Um, I have debates with fellow parents about YouTube's recommendation algorithm quite a bit. My children only watch YouTube, uh, as I know many children do. Uh, in fact, I have a sort of Luddite reaction to this sometimes where I tell them, back in my day, we used to watch cable television. <laughs> and there was a thing that we did where we just scrolled through channels and we just watched whatever was on and they've never experienced that. Uh, instead, they watch essentially whatever the algorithm recommends next based on what they've watched previously. There are problems with this, and that's part of my job, is to figure out what the problems are with that. Um, but this has also exposed them to amazing things in science and engineering, math, technology, history, literature. Uh, there are wonderful YouTube channels where there's so much exciting information presented in fun ways for children. Uh, and they have really, I would say, learned more through YouTube 
than I learned as a kid anywhere. Hmm. Uh, so this is this is amazing, and I, I am I am always happy to acknowledge that. Uh, while at the same time going back to my my usual job, which is to say, okay, here's all of the ways that it can go wrong and does go mm -hmm. wrong. How would you like? How would a society ensure that AI and uh, systems developed uh, through AI benefit everybody, not just someone who's like you know who has the money to spend on it uh, and and has a lower economic status or third world countries where there's no access to a lot of things? Yeah, this is an important problem, and it is a larger problem beyond just how do we design AI models in a responsible way. It is a question about access as well. Uh, and these are broader political problems, not just having to do with access to technology, um, but access, access to resources in general. Uh, I would say a lot of these problems can't be solved by uh, scientists and engineers, um, but instead these are larger scale problems which need to be solved um, through direct political action. Uh, and I encourage that as well. I mean, I don't only think about and work on ethical political issues having to do with AI. Uh, I also think more broadly about issues having to do with our society and the distribution of opportunities and wealth in, in human society in general all over the world, um, but especially in places like the United States where it's drastically unequal and there are historical injustices which have driven those inequalities. Um, so I, I encourage and support outside of technology um, the, the restructuring, to put it boldly, uh, of society in a way where people who are disadvantaged have access to not just AI and technology, um, but also to other basic important human resources. Um, that being said, I also think there is a role to play here for technology and for AI. Um, when we talk about, for instance, hiring and credit, um, these are decisions which influence the distribution of wealth and opportunities and power in a society. And it is important to acknowledge that when you are designing a model for hiring or for lending, that you are actually playing a role in that larger political structure. Um, and not to ignore that. Right? that you can indeed and should perhaps play a role in that larger uh, political history of your society. Um, I, I, I think that tech companies need to acknowledge the role they can play more in the, the models that they're building as well. If it was up to you when you were to give a checklist to someone who's developing new AI and you'd be like, you know what, make sure this, this, this is taken care of and you'll be... Yeah safer than you know you would have otherwise what would that look like so i'll have to give it, give it a disclaimer before <laughs> i answer that and the disclaimer is that i try to avoid checklist mentalities okay um they can 
prevent people from engaging with the problems, taking them seriously, dwelling on them. Um, that disclaimer being said, <laughs> I, I could give, let's call it a checklist as a support tool uh, <laughs> for someone who is also thinking about these problems, dwelling on them, taking them seriously, and trying to develop well-thought-out responsible policies. The checklist might look something like this. You have to first look at how your data is collected, where did it come from, is it collected in a way that is respectful of the sources? And that includes, of course, credit, compensation, consent. The next kind of item on this checklist would be something having to do with the model itself, the procedures of the model, the architecture of the model. Is this a model which can be explained to people who it is impacting? Uh, what do you mean by explanation? Uh, if it is explained, why do you think this is the right kind of explanation to give to your uh, stakeholders? The next kind of item on that checklist would have to do with the impacts of that model, uh, both the impacts in terms of direct harms that it's doing. Uh, if it is, for example, potentially misused, if it can be used for um, making propaganda, hate speech, if it can be used for pornography, if it can be used for harm and injury, uh, what are the errors that it can make or that it will be expected to make? Um, do those benefits actually outweigh the, the harms uh, that your model could cause psychologically? And, and the large scale, the next item on the, the checklist would be the sort of large scale impacts of this in our society, as we were discussing. Is this model actually having some kind of impact on underrepresented groups, on marginalized, oppressed groups in our society? Is this bringing people up in some way? And finally, on the checklist, I would add a simple question, which is when this model does do something blameworthy, who can we point to and hold responsible? Right. Is there an obvious kind of person you can say, this person is the one that we can blame and hold responsible? Where can people find your work? What are you working on? So I have a website DerekLieben.com. And on that website, I post my articles, my media appearances, my courses that I'm teaching. Um, I will regularly update that with material as it comes along. Uh, you can also, if you like, uh, well, I was going to say follow me on social media, but I don't have social media. Not even Twitter, uh, the cesspool that it is. I, I stepped away from social media in 2017, partly as a personal choice. It just wasn't good for me psychologically, um, but partly as an ethical choice. Um, and these are these are obviously questions of, of importance personally, where uh, it's a bit like vegetarianism. Uh, where you are making a choice saying something like, I am, I am not going to take part in this. Um, I understand that other people are, um, but if we all collectively were to stop doing this, uh, then perhaps it would be for the good. Hmm. Um, 
Now, this is an important claim as well that we haven't really gotten into. Is social okay. media overall more, more good than harm? I think there are some platforms of social media that are more, more good than harm overall. Others like Twitter, which I tend to think, and Facebook, uh, which I think are more harm than good. What about TikTok? Because a lot of the younger generation is hooked on TikTok right now, but it seems to have uh, like a, a smarter AI system. So it keeps you on their platform for longer than you would on Facebook or Instagram. What I like about TikTok is that, at least from what I know about it, the recommendation procedure is entirely based on your own preferences and your own views. Now, that's that's fascinating because I like to talk about and think about the difference between recommendation procedures that are obviously incorporating sponsorship uh, versus those that are pure in some way, where the goal of the system is entirely just to optimize for what you want to watch rather than optimizing for also what is good for the company and what is good for the advertisers. Um, and so in that respect, I actually, I like TikTok. But doesn't um, that create an echo chamber of just the information that you want to see? Yes. Yes, it does. And indeed, these are broader problems as well with any kind of social media, which is that if you have that reinforcement procedure, then you're going to inevitably create these bubbles, these epistemic bubbles. Uh, and I think that's a serious problem with any social media platform. Uh, so I will say my answer is that with respect to its promotion of content based entirely on user preferences rather than advertisements, I like it. With respect to the general issues of any social media platform, uh, I think it has problems. <laughs> but I, I don't necessarily know if those problems outweigh the outweigh the benefits of it. What about like you know social media being used for propaganda like this a whole thing about uh, people being deplatformed or doxxed on social media how does one navigate that because the people or like the the company that's deciding if this is okay and this is not okay uh affecting the way you know your viewers are suppressed and stuff like that uh because at the end of the day they own the company so they decide what's on their platform technically but then the way they decide kind of also skews the information that you get. Yeah, and indeed, this is a, a great example where companies actually do, I think, rightly take responsibility for the content on their platforms. They could theoretically just say, uh, we're going to allow anything that's legal on the platform, which initially it seemed like maybe Elon Musk was going to do, and then he didn't <laughs> do that. Uh, they could also take the opposite extreme and say, we're going to take off any content that we don't like from the platform too. Those are all options the company has. It's a mm. private organization. It could do what it likes yeah. within the context of the law. Um, however, most, or I should say all of the social media companies, uh, at least attempt to provide some kind of ethically defensible policy about content moderation and they work very hard to enforce that policy and i think that's that is to be respected uh i i acknowledge and respect that they do make attempts to police unacceptable content and remove it when necessary it's a difficult job i wouldn't want that 
<laughs> job. But at the same time, as you point out, uh, there are always going to be these problems of what counts as content that goes too far into hate speech, into propaganda, uh, that becomes acceptable. Now, to some extent, I think this is a healthy and good debate for any society to continue to have. Uh, there are always going to be these difficult problems. Uh, and this is, to some extent, good. I, I'm, I'm encouraging of this. Um, at the same time, there are these new problems which social media presents. It's not just the same thing that existed before, but faster. Uh, there is, to use a metaphor from physics, a, a sort of change of state that happens. Uh, almost like moving from a liquid to a solid, where when information can be disseminated in an anonymous way, and then you have these functions that propagate it, the like and retweet functions, uh, which can cause something to go viral, um, that this is a new type of social and political problem which human societies have not had to deal with before. And I wish I could say that I had a good solution for it, uh, but I do not, I do not. Um, I do think that social media companies are to be praised for, like I said, trying to police their content. Um, in some cases, I think that some platforms are more harm than good, like Twitter. What I can do about that is say things like, I'm not going to use Twitter in the same way that a vegetarian might say, I'm not going to eat meat um, and, and maybe protest it and encourage others to quit it as well. But at the same time, um, I don't have many large scale solutions for this important social and political problem. Do you see in the future where, you know, like Elon Musk has mentioned that, you know, he's working on Neuralink where they could have a chip in your brain and, you know, that kind of works as an AI system for you. It's almost a, a bionic part of your body. Then there would be a big disparity between people who have that and who do not. And then like, you know, like how people are using these free AI platforms or systems where they can use to like write stuff or draw or create pictures and images. And then when people have these neural link chips in their head, they're performing differently in almost every avenue and space in life over someone who does not. And then there'll be this big divide. Yeah. And this is a problem, not just in technology, but in any kind of medical treatments, medical devices, uh, where we have to deal with the problem that initially in its development, uh, there's going to be this disparity of access that happens between rich and poor uh, and how to how to deal with that disparity. Uh, now, when it comes to enhancement, uh, like, for example, giving people prosthetic devices, prosthetic limbs, uh, say, which are not medical, but instead they are for the purpose of increasing their physical abilities, increasing their mental abilities. Um, it might not seem at first like we need to worry about that problem until, like you said, uh, there might emerge this, this class of enhanced humans <laughs> uh, which is then different from the class of non-enhanced humans. Uh, I must 
insert another disclaimer here, uh, which is just that this is far from the issues that I usually work on uh, in AI ethics. Uh, there are some people in AI ethics who work on long-term problems having to do with the future of humanity and how we are going to merge with machines or perhaps be killed by machines and so on. Um, but then there are other people who work on these current issues having to do with models that are moving around in the world and autonomous vehicles and making decisions about loans and hiring. You know, that's, that's the kind of stuff I usually work on. Hmm. Uh, at the same time, uh, I'm never shy from talking about fun, interesting things. Uh, so I can talk about this in a, in a speculative way, but this is not my, my sort of professional focus, I will, I will have to say. So as a fun speculative discussion around the, around the coffee shop here, I would say that when it comes to the concern about a class of enhanced humans, cognitively enhanced humans or physically enhanced humans, um, being separate from this this sort of lower class of humans, uh, I think that the the only way to sort of prevent that, if that becomes a serious issue, uh, is the same kind of way of having fair distributions of wealth and opportunities and resources um, is some form of uh, sacrifice on the part of the ones in power, the ones who have access. Uh, this is an old idea in political theory. Um, why should those who have power, who have wealth, have to sacrifice uh, for those who don't? And I think I mentioned I have this uh, social political approach and my, my ethical approach as well called contractarianism. Uh, that's based on the work, the work of the American philosopher John Rawls. Uh, and in that, in that theory, um, we should instead care about the most vulnerable, the people who are worst off in our society and bringing them up to a certain minimal level of functioning. Um, this is perhaps contrasted with um, another popular movement called long-termism, uh, which obviously has become notorious in the last six months or so because of the affiliation between long-termism, effective altruism, and people like uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, so this is a movement which is in some ways inspired by the moral theory called utilitarianism, uh, which says that we need to maximize overall benefit, overall good for the most people. Um, and the, the contrast between that and a Rawlsian contractarianism is that the Rawlsian is more worried about the people who are worse off right now and bringing them up to some minimal level of functioning. Um, even if that does mean sacrifices for the greater good, right? And so from the, for, the sort of largest possible scale that I can, that I can step back to, uh, I would say that, that my general approach is always based on trying to maximize the situation of the, the worst off rather than the total uh, people in our society. And so from that large scale perspective, uh, indeed, we should try to make future technologies like cognitive enhancements, physical enhancements, uh, accessible 
to everyone, um, even if that does require some sacrifice in the long-term future of humanity or sacrifice to the, the, the greater good of some sort. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking with me. You're welcome.